This is Reformation Sunday, and we will postpone our exposition of Luke and return to it next week. There will be occasional breaks in Luke. For example, during the Christmas season, we will be breaking from Luke and returning to it afterward. But for this morning, please turn with me in your Bibles to Paul's epistle to the Galatians. first chapter. I was in a bookstore a few years back, and there were all of these Halloween things all over the place. And I went up to um, the proprietor, and I said, you know, one of the greatest events in the history of Western civilization happened on October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg, and I've looked through your bookstore, and I haven't seen a thing about it. Uh, The proprietor didn't know the Reformation had taken place, and we don't want that for our children. This is not a history lesson, but a sermon this morning, but be sure and go home and teach your children about the Protestant Reformation, its impact on Western culture, its impact upon the church in particular. Galatians chapter 1, even though we will be focusing on verses 6 through 10, I would like to begin reading at verse 1. Will you pray with me? We ask, Heavenly Father, for the powerful work of your Holy Spirit. That same Holy Spirit that was poured upon your church on the day of Pentecost, that Holy Spirit that enables your people to call upon you now, for we are all baptized by one Spirit into one body. That Holy Spirit who poured out his powerful presence in the 16th century so that multitudes came to know Christ and the church was reformed, and that Holy Spirit, our blessed Blessed Holy Spirit, to whom we now pray, for whom we now call, to be upon this preacher, the reading and preaching of the word, and upon this congregation now, that we may indeed truly be a reformed, a Protestant, a biblical congregation, and that we may live reformed, Protestant, and biblical, gospel-driven lives is our prayer. In the name of Christ, the head and king of the church, we pray. Amen. Will you take your copy of God's word and stand as we read Galatians, again, verses 6 through 10 is the focus, but we would begin with verse 1, Galatians chapter 1. This is the word of God. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. 
Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Please be seated. Well, Covenant Presbyterian Church is a Reformed church. By that we mean that our historical roots are traceable to the Protestant Reformation. When the Protestant Reformers were raised up by God, notably Luther and Calvin, but many others as well, who preached a gospel that had been forgotten, layer upon layer of works righteousness atop that gospel, stripped away so that the gospel of free grace once again could be proclaimed in the world. And behind the Reformed, the Reformation, is in particular the Apostle Paul. All of God's Word, but Paul in particular because of his focus upon the sovereignty of the grace of God. Of course, that means also that we are a Protestant congregation. Now, the word Protestant, when you think of it, you might think, well, it means to protest against, and that's true. Uh, Protestari did mean to protest against, but it also has a positive meaning to confess. Not only to say, this is what we do not believe, this is what we oppose, but these are the things that we do believe. These are the things that are taught in the Word of God. Now, when the church is truly reformed, both of those things will happen. Uh, The church will say, these are the things that we do not believe. These are the things that we must stand against. But also, these are the things that we do believe, and these are the things that we do confess, and we preach positively the gospel of our risen Lord in the world. The Reformation was an attentive listening to the Word of God. And if there is any goal that we who lead you in this church have is that we be attentive listeners to the Word of God and help you to be attentive, really attentive. I mean heart attention, really attentive listeners to the Word of God. That's what the Protestant Reformation was all about, listening to what God said, submitting to what He said about who He is, about our need, about salvation, about worship, about all things. The Protestant Reformation, Reformation, reformed to form again according to the teaching of the Word of God, a restoration of biblical Christianity. Now, Paul, the apostle who wrote the words that we have read this morning, tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 2 that the servant of the Lord must be gentle. But Paul, the apostle, is anything but gentle here. The servant of the Lord must be gentle. But there are rare occasions in which the servant of the Lord cannot be faithful and be gentle. There certainly is an exception. 
When a religious leader or leaders deny salvation by grace through Christ alone and would leave God's people in the bondage of pastoral cruelty, which was the situation in which the reformers found God's professing people under medieval Roman Catholicism? When that happens, it would be wrong to be gentle. There are times in which leaders must preach forthrightly and say to others who lead, This is not what the Bible teaches, and this is what the Bible teaches, and there is a stark contrast. Now, remember the background of Galatians, that the churches of Galatia were being led astray by a party that we sometimes call the Judaizing party, and they were teaching that, of course, we're saved by Christ, of course, we're saved by grace, but it's Christ plus works of the law. It's grace in addition to which are works of the law. Now, there are those who doubt today that we should come to the book of Galatians or Romans and preach on a day such as this one and say that there was some correspondence between what the Protestant reformers found in medieval Roman Catholicism and what Paul found in the Judaizing teachers that infiltrated the Galatian churches and other churches as well in the New Testament era, but I think they're totally wrong. At base, what Paul the Apostle was opposing when he opposed the works righteousness of the Judaizers, time different, setting different, particulars different, nonetheless, at base, what he was opposing is at base what Martin Luther opposed in the 16th century, John Calvin opposed in the 16th century, And we also must oppose if we are going to confess this is what we believe about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're fighting, Luther was fighting, Calvin was fighting, we continue to fight, and I think until Christ comes again, we will continue to fight in various places on one level or another, the same fundamental battle against works righteousness that Paul fought in his day. Because, as I often have said, there's a Pharisee in every human heart. Now, we come to this text, and the first thing that we see in verses 6 through 10, the first thing we see is found in verse 6, and it is Paul's amazement. He says, I am astonished, or I am amazed, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. You will have noticed probably that the usual thanksgiving that you would find in one of Paul's epistles is absent here. Paul goes right to the heart of things. He is abrupt. He is angry. He is passionate. He is denunciatory. He comes with his boxing gloves on. If salvation is by works, Christ died for nothing. As a matter of fact, in chapter 2, verse 21, the apostle says, I do not nullify the grace of God For if righteousness, and by righteousness there he means imputed righteousness, a declaration that we are accepted with God, if righteousness were through the law, if our acceptance with God were through our works, then Christ died for no purpose. So he expresses amazement because Paul himself had had been only recently with them proclaiming the gospel and had founded the churches in Galatia. And they had eagerly received the gospel, and now in a very short period of time, it's a present tense, meaning a present continuing tense, they are now in the process of 
defecting from the gospel that Paul had preached to a man-made works righteousness religion. And notice there in verse 6, he uses the word called. We sinners are not aware of our need. We do not by nature seek God because we are dead in our trespasses and sins. God is the seeking God and the finding God. Calling underscores the theme that salvation is all of grace. Works righteousness would reverse this. It makes us the seeker rather than God. In the grace of Christ contrasts with the purpose of the false teachers, which was so to redefine grace as to deny its reality. Now, it's very important to see that they did not say, we don't believe in grace. They would all have said, we believe in grace. But you need to listen to what is being said when those who claim to be gospel preachers preach the gospel. Do they really believe that we are justified by grace alone? The Protestant Reformation had certain slogans. Scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, to the glory of God alone. Summarizing biblical reformational theology. And there was a denial of grace alone that was being attacked by Paul in this passage. If we forsake the gospel, we forsake the God of the gospel. And we can do so by adding A relationship with God is not attained by law-keeping, but by sheer grace. And I have no doubt that someone did not hear what I said. That there is someone here who still thinks that you can contribute something to your acceptance with God, but you and I cannot. Now, this is what Luther came to understand in what is called his tower experience, his conversion experience. I want to take a moment, since this is Reformation Day, to read to you what Martin Luther said about his conversion. Luther said, as a monk, I lived an irreproachable life. Nevertheless, I felt that I was a sinner before God. My conscience was restless, and I could not depend on God being propitiated by my satisfactions. Not only did I not love, but I actually hated the righteousness of God the righteous God who punishes sinners. Thus a furious battle raged within my perplexed conscience. But meanwhile, I was knocking at the door of this particular Pauline passage. He's talking about Romans 1, 14 through 16. Earnestly seeking to know the mind of the great apostle. You see, God was calling Martin Luther. Day and night I tried to meditate upon the significance of these words. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Then finally God had mercy on me and I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that gift of God by which a righteous man lives, namely faith. And that this sentence, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, is passive, indicating that the merciful God justifies us by faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now I felt as though I had been reborn altogether. He felt that way because he had been. He was reborn. I felt as though I had been reborn altogether and had entered paradise in the same moment, the face of the whole of Scripture became apparent to me. My, man, my mind ran through Scriptures as far as I was able to recollect them, seeking analogies and other phrases, such as the work of God by which he makes us strong, the wisdom of God by which he makes us wise, the strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God. 
just as intensely as I had before hated the expression, the righteousness of God, I now lovingly praised this most pleasant word. This passage from Paul became to me the very gate to paradise. So Martin Luther came to understand that the only way in which he could be accepted by God was not through all of his monkish works, but only by trusting in Christ alone for his salvation and his redemption. Because you see, Roman Catholicism defined justification, acceptance with God, as an infusion of grace rather than an imputation, a declaration concerning us that we are righteous through the righteousness of Christ. And the upshot was that Roman Catholicism eclipsed the joy of the gospel. In Roman Catholicism, one typically could never, and today it is still true in their theology, you cannot be sure of your salvation. There are exceptions to that by a special divine revelation, by approximating obedience to the church. You can approximate assurance, but no one can be assured of his salvation in Roman Catholic theology. In Luther, and in Paul in particular, the gospel is a matter of great joy because assurance of faith is grounded in this alien righteousness, this righteousness that I don't produce, but is outside of me, that is declared concerning me in God's court of law, that I am fully and completely righteous and accepted by God because of the righteousness of Christ that I have received by faith. Roman Catholicism destroys the certainty of faith, and it is pastorally cruel. It is not the only theological system that is pastorally cruel, but it is true of any false gospel. For Roman Catholicism, justification is a process in which we strive. For Luther and Calvin and Paul in particular, acceptance with God is altogether by grace through the grace of faith received. So you see in chapter 2, verse 16, we actually looked at this passage in Vespers Wednesday night. In chapter 2, verse 16, Paul says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Well, how is it possible? Well, in chapter 3, verse 13 of this book, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, that law and its perfection that comes against us and says, you are a sinner. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So the apostle Paul understood that the law of God that comes against us sinners because we are condemned by our sin, that all of its condemnation has been met by Jesus Christ when he shed his blood on a cross and bore the curse in the place of sinners like you and me, freeing us from this attempt at works righteousness by which somehow we hope to be accepted by God. Well, will you notice secondly with me, Paul's gospel of exclusivity. Paul's gospel of exclusivity. Let's read verses 6 and 7 of Galatians 1 again. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Notice he says, 
which is not another. Grace means it is all of God. By adding something, anything, no matter what or how small, on this great matter of how we are accepted with God, we destroy the concept of grace. It is either all of grace or it is all of works. There is no middle ground. And so the ESV well translates here that they want to distort. The word here means literally wishing. They wish to distort. It was deliberate. They wish to trouble you, to unsettle you, claiming that it it leads to a better understanding of the gospel. We're not setting aside Christ and grace. We're better explaining the gospel. And they purpose to lead astray by perverting the gospel. Paul uses the word pervert. Pervert means to change something often into its opposite. And that's what it means here. Now today we also face syncretism, don't we? Islam and Christianity, we are told, are all the same. There are so many sacred books. What right do you have to say that yours is the one? But we answer the Bible and the Quran are diametrically opposed. What right do you have to relativize Scripture's absolute claims, thus changing the Christian faith into its opposite? We have an answer that no one else has. Jesus Christ, this unique person, went to a cross, shed his blood, bore our curse, was raised from the dead, really, truly, historically, for our justification. So why is Paul angry? Paul is angry because there is syncretism, not out there, but in the church. The gospel is being denied at its very core because Paul knows of man that our hearts are sinful, our minds are darkened, our hearts are dead toward God, that we are without hope. He knows that God is just and must pronounce the final word on sin and that he bears with him inflexible justice against the sinner and he knows There's only one hope, and that is the good news, the gospel, the cross of Christ. In the cross, as T.R. Glover said so many years ago, in the cross, Paul saw a moral and spiritual more than equivalent for the judgment. The cross took at once that central place in the universe, which had been held by the great white throne. It solved the problem of God's righteousness and man's sin. And that is why Paul is angry. That was why Luther opposed the Pope. And if ever I should stand in this pulpit and preach some other gospel than the gospel of grace, please know it is because I have lost my mind and get me out of this pulpit. Which leads us to the third point that we see in the text, Paul's denunciation. You see how he denounces false teachers in verses 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now notice he says, we... Paul includes himself. We includes Paul, the one who is writing. Basically is saying, and I'm saying to you, judge my ministry by faithfulness to the gospel. 
Can you imagine a more authoritative messenger than an angel from heaven? But if an angel from heaven were to come and preach something to you contrary to the gospel of God's free grace, then that very angel should be anathematized. Now, people of God, it's not eloquence, it's not charisma, it's not personality, it's not how well thought of someone may be out there in the religious world. It's the message of the gospel that matters. It's not the true gospel because of the one who preaches. It is the true gospel because of the one who gave us the message to preach and because that true message is delivered. So Paul says in no uncertain terms in these verses, may false teachers who deny the gospel, may false teachers who deny the sovereign grace of God, may false teachers who deny justification by grace alone, through faith alone, through the work of Christ alone, may they be anathema. Now anathema means may they be damned. May they be accursed. Now that's very strong language. And you cannot believe how some of the commentators on Galatians try and work around that. But Paul means exactly what he says. What I said when I was with you before, I say again. Let me just stress it again, he says. To add law to grace as a means of acceptance with God nullifies the grace of God. And if we preach that, then we are to be anathematized. It's very subtle. Let me remind you, as I have a million times, that rat poison is 99% cornmeal. Nothing wrong with the cornmeal. It's the 1% arsenic that kills the rat. So a false teacher can say all sorts of good things about Christ, and yet if he misses this, salvation by grace through faith in Christ, that's the poison that kills the people of God. Romans 11.6, but it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. The gospel brings freedom. So don't miss the anathemas that you find in this passage. A different gospel brings judgment. A different gospel that is no gospel brings the judgment of God indeed upon the church. Now you know this in your own conscience. Those times that as a believer you begin to waver on grace, you slip back into thinking that you can earn God's favor by what you do and you become anxious and your heart condemns you. And then I like to go back to the Belgic Confession, one of our great Reformed confessions. Guido de Bray, who died for his faith in the Reformation, who wrote that great confession, the Belgic Confession of Faith. And he says, our consciences would be continually vexed if they relied not on the merits of the suffering and death of our Savior. Our consciences would be continually vexed if they relied not on the merits of the suffering and death of our Savior. Do you rely upon the merit of Christ alone for your redemption and salvation? Do you rely upon his suffering and his death for you and his resurrection from the dead? You see, Paul cares about God's glory. That's first of all why he's angry. 
But Paul calls upon us to understand in this text that he also is deeply concerned with the salvation of the souls of men. And because of that, he is angry that false teaching has entered the church. So he denounces false teaching. A rare thing to hear nowadays, but that's what he did. Now let me say something quickly here. We're not saying everyone with whom we may have disagreement about various things is a false teacher. You know that. There's a difference between heresy and heterodoxy. There can be men who are right on many things and right on the gospel who can be wrong on some very important things. Some of my best ministerial friends are Baptists who think that I'm wrong on baptism and I think they're wrong on baptism. They're good men. They're solid men. They believe the gospel. They know I believe the gospel. They're not heretics. They don't count me a heretic because we differ on something that's very important that I hope I would die for because I believe it so firmly and and so strongly. But they're right on the gospel. See, Paul's issue here is a denial of justification by faith. That's the issue. That's the issue. doesn't mean these other issues are not important. They are very important. They have practical implications for Christian living for the life of the church. But the fundamental issue, the core issue, is how is a man, a woman, how is a sinner accepted by God? Do we contribute anything to it? No. It is all of grace from first to last. Now notice with me Paul's proclamation of freedom. Paul's proclamation of freedom. And it takes us to verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You see, to discredit Paul, he was accused of living for man's favor. The words just used prove that this was not the case. Paul is striving to please God, not man. Not trying to earn God's favor, but preaching the gospel of grace, living out of grace in his life and ministry, no matter what persecution might come to him. He was seeking to please God, not man. Now, the trap into which the church has fallen very often in our day, and you can see it through church history actually, is wanting to become popular and relevant. Now, the gospel is always relevant. And the church's worship through the centuries is always relevant. We don't have to make it relevant. It is relevant. So the church dulls the edge, holds back, says, says everything with a sickly smile, avoids judgment, sin, hell, tries to win men by worldly means, and in many ways blunts the gospel of grace. We have become in many instances thoroughly man-centered. And if there is anything to understand about Paul and about the Protestant Reformation and the Reformers, it is the glory of God was their chief concern. That only by being God-centered could we appropriately relate to the needs of men. It is impossible to live to please man and at the same time live to please God. And so Paul has already said that he's Christ's doulos, his slave. The slave is completely under his master's authority. He is wholeheartedly devoted to his Lord. And he's serving Christ, which means surrendering the desire to curry the favor of men. 
This is the apostle who knows that God works all things according to his own immutable will. This is the apostle that has a very high and lofty view of who God is. And the Protestant Reformation was a return to what the Bible taught about God. And so it puts man in his proper place. Created in God's image, but now fallen, deserving of God's infinite displeasure, only can be saved by the direct intervention of God through Jesus Christ our Lord and the Holy Spirit's application of his work to our hearts. Now that's why Paul is free. He's not concerned about what others think. He's not preoccupied with it. I don't mean be impolite to people. I'm saying on these great matters of salvation, the great matters of the gospel, it doesn't matter if people like what we preach or not. The gospel does something better than binding us with a constant desire to please people. The gospel frees you, it enables you to serve people without a concern for brownie points. And in serving others, you're serving Christ. The gospel frees you from looking over your shoulder and constantly wondering what people think about you and how you must position yourself for advancement. Or in the case of ministry, it enables the minister to do what pleases God, whether men like it or not. It enables us PCA ministers to uphold our ordination vows to preach the gospel no matter what persecution may come. So this sovereign, invincible God, the God of Romans 9, who saves whom he will, Paul's view of God is so big, that's really not well put, because the issue is not a quantitative issue, it's qualitative. God is infinite. And this is the God that fills his mind and fills his heart and fills his soul And he is concerned with pleasing this God rather than pleasing man. That's why, you know, in Romans uh, chapter 9, when he's preaching about the electing grace of God, it has been in chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, he comes to the end of that discussion in chapter 11, and he simply breaks out into praise for this great sovereign God. And he says, oh, the depth of the riches. This is Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. So he is so filled with the knowledge of who this great God is that he is willing to go into the world and preach a gospel of a crucified Jew that is considered to be a scandal for which he will be stoned and persecuted and even in the church he will be denounced. But he can do no other. He's like Martin Luther, the Apostle Paul. Here I stand. I can do no other. Now, we've been applying all along, but let me leave you with, let's say, three pointed applications. The first application is the vigilance to which this text calls the members of our congregation and the officers of our church. Churches are declining and drifting. In some places, they're swelling in numbers. 
but they are less and less true church, a true church of Christ. Churches are declining and drifting. There is discontentment in many places with the gospel. Many want novelty. Be sure of those who teach you. That's the point here. Is Jesus Christ always heard? Is the gospel at the core? Is the sovereign grace of God the message? It's not PC, but it's biblical. And on the issue of the gospel, we must be intolerant. Remember, the Galatians quickly deserted the gospel. I've said to this congregation, I will say it again and again and again, it only takes one generation. One generation, or even less. And this church could lose the gospel or its emphasis upon the grace of God. So remember, the Galatians deserted the gospel. Let's not be proud and say that we cannot. Let us be resolute. Let us be determined. Let us bring up children and young people who are determined to serve Christ no matter the cost. To be controlled by zeal for the gospel. Is your life controlled by zeal for the gospel? I mean your life. Not just sitting here on Sunday morning. But does it spill over into everything, this message of the gospel? Are you controlled by zeal for the gospel? That's what Paul, that's what Luther, that's what Calvin are saying to us, I think, on this day of Reformation. The second application really has to do with ministers. So this applies to me in particular and to Pastor McDonald, other ministers who may be here this morning, to our intern, Adam McNeil. Calvin, in one of his sermons, says, all those, listen to this, all those who have the responsibility and the duty of teaching the church of God must forget the favor and approval of the world. If they do not, they can never carry out their duty faithfully. For men will always desire to be pandered to and cannot bear being reproved for their sins as they deserve. So it is not too much for the church to expect Christ's ministers that we conduct our lives and ministries in the fear of God, is it? We will never conduct our lives and ministries with perfection. But you ought to be able to look at your ministers and say, they know God, love God, and they serve Him in fear, in reverence and in awe. And they want to pass down to you and to our children the good deposit. Let's turn to a couple of passages. In 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, just to give you a few examples of the importance of passing on this biblical message. 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14. Paul says, follow, he's speaking to young Timothy, the young minister, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, the first three verses. You then, my child, he's speaking to Timothy, 
be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, the first eight verses. 2 Timothy 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who love his appearing. You know, a few years ago, I don't know, a couple, three, Elder Steve Sly was in Italy and went to the Mamertine prison, which is thought to be the prison where the Apostle Paul was imprisoned when he wrote these last words in 2 Timothy, his last will and testament, if you will. Dr. Sly picked up a stone on the ground outside the Mamertine prison and he brought it to me and he handed it to me and he said, this is from outside the Mamertine prison. I brought it to you as a reminder because I want you to finish well. I want to finish well. I want you to finish well. Never departing from the gospel of God's sovereign free grace. We could go to other places in the scriptures. The book of Jude, the third verse, earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. The ESV translates it, contend for the faith. But there is an intensifying preposition on the front of that word. The old authorized version translates it far better, earnestly contend for the faith. With up, if you will, with all that you have, Contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. That's the Protestant Reformation. It is to God that we ministers will give an account. And we just need to remember Pastor MacDonald, Brother McNeil, I need to remember others who are here that preach the gospel. We need to remember how great God is and how little man is. Oh, we love men, but we're little. God is the one to whom we will give an account. Every one of us will stand before him on that great day. So that leads to the third thing. When you stand before him, will you be dressed in the righteousness of Christ received by faith? Or will you stand before him naked and lost and undone? Calvin said, it is not for us to create, it is not for us to create the gospel anew. 
You see, every person needs to know the message of redemption. Do you know it? Give up on thinking that you have even a drop of merit, that you can contribute even a thimbleful of good works to your salvation, to your acceptance with God. Otherwise, you will not come to Christ. Paul, the apostle, the Lord Jesus Christ, did not preach to healthy people. Paul preached for sinners. And one of the problems in Western culture, I think we can surely see, is that we're much too healthy. I'm talking about how we regard ourselves. We blame shift, we denominate sin by every other name possible, but what our age lacks is real despair. I mean real despair, a recognized sense of sin, and the presence of an infinitely holy God. And where that is present, nothing but the good news of Jesus Christ who died for sinners, now risen from the dead, will do. You will feel your need to be reconciled to God and that no one could do such a work but Jesus Christ. Trusting him, he becomes the supreme reality of your life. And indeed, Christ is the supreme reality of the universe. And so he should be the supreme reality of your life. We cannot be kind if we tell you there is some other way. There is no other Savior than Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Come in faith to Christ alone. Now this is Reformation Sunday, and so I can't refrain but bringing to conclusion with a quotation from John Calvin. Calvin says this, it's quite beautiful. Inestimable treasures are contained in the gospel. God is reconciled with man. The gates of heaven are open to us. Our Lord Jesus Christ has been given to us as our inheritance. We are made partakers of all the good things that he has bestowed upon us. And we are assured of our eternal salvation. It were better that the whole world should perish and be consumed than that this gospel should be perverted. This is what Paul says about all who have come to trouble us after we have been so faithfully taught. And of all those who bring us little novelties, mixing in their own inventions here and there. These people turn men from the kingdom of God and from his royal throne so that they are no longer governed by him. And thereby the scepter of our Lord Jesus Christ is no longer extended to them for their salvation. If God's honor and our salvation is as dear to us as it ought to be, and if sharing in all the blessings of heaven is precious to us, then whenever we are approached by such scoundrels seeking to detract from the majesty of God, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and even our salvation, ought we not to shun them and cast them out as we would the most deadly plague in the world? This, in short, is what we must do. We must cling with a strong affection to the gospel and not allow anyone to corrupt it in any way. We must not let anybody confuse our minds by their claims to be bringing us an alternative view, even if the people who speak to us have great knowledge and are skillful, sharp-witted, and very eloquent We must reject them as abominations, people who have come to draw us away from the purity of the gospel, 
This is what Paul is teaching us here. People of God, there's only one way to the Father. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.